Welcome to the Final Ghost Podcast, where we all float down here. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Ghost Collective and your podcast host. Recently just come back from Cannes, so still, still getting over it. Um, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the the dispatch recap episode that I recorded about the genre or genre adjacent movies that have been screening at this year's Cannes Film Festival. Um, it's a slightly new format for me for this podcast. If it works, let me know and I can look into making more of those. With that said, if you're new to the show, first of all, welcome. We are finalizing, covering the last handful of films of this fourth series of the show where we're looking at teen horror movies in depth, really stretching the definition of what makes a teen horror movie and exploring why teenagers make for such compelling protagonists and often villains of the genre. Today's double bill, although you could also argue that it is not in fact a double bill and just one movie split into two movies, is the first big screen adaptation of Stephen King's It both directed by Andy Muschietti. It Chapter 1 came out in 2017, followed a few years later in 2019 by It Chapter 2, and it is essentially, and as you'll hear in the episode, one story, but that for obvious reasons had to be split into two. Um, The book, for anyone who's not read it, is over a thousand pages long, and it's an incredibly sprawling story about a group of teenagers or near teenagers who have to tackle a, as Luke, my guest in this episode, calls him a fear chameleon, uh, mostly remembered as Pennywise the Clown. And joining me in this episode is regular guest, it's super fan and exquisite broadcaster and writer Louise Blaine. A quick reminder, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Final Ghost UK. And if you can, spare a few seconds of your day to leave us a little review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts, I would deeply appreciate that. And as usual, please note that we will be spoiling everything about the films, both of them, pretty much from the very beginning. So do keep that in mind if you're spoiler-averse. With all of that said, please enjoy our deep dive into IT. Hi, Louise. Welcome back. Welcome Hi, to Derry. Anna. Oh, gosh. No, <laughs> the nightmares will begin. Dear me, if we're in Derry already. I thought we'd maybe have, you know, just some nice chat first. But no, welcome to Derry. Bring your own balloons. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but they can only be red. Only red balloons. Uh, I am... I'm, listen, I am really tired for this also so listeners know I've just come back from Cannes the night the night before we're recording this I watched these two movies rewatched them just before leaving mm-hmm. and occasionally walking down the croisette everything was lit up red and I Ooh. swear to you uh, it was a very long walk from kind of the main part of Cannes where the screenings are happening to the apartment where I was staying and yeah. I kept thinking if a red balloon pops up just randomly from under the bridge from one of the beaches, I will throw myself into the sea. I'm like, yeah. I'm not fucking around with Pennywise. Like, absolutely not. <laughs> that would be it. No, <laughs> literally it. Oh, it's, it's, 
like before we even get into it, like th- these movies, for better or worse, mm-hmm. are full of some of the most brilliantly horrific imaginative imagery. Like that Absolutely. just sticks in your head. Like it is. I mean, for for what people say about them, and I will really go into it. Like these are objectively scary things from mm-hmm. people that clearly love to scare the shit out of you. And the fact that their base material is a book that I absolutely adore from mm-hmm. literally the master of horror means every layer of it is baked in fear. And also it's extremely noticeable how much love there is from both the Andy and Barbara Muschietti, the director and the producer of both it's that there is a deep love and understanding for the world of Stephen King too. And yeah. the world of it in particular, because we might touch on the, on the book a little bit, but it is a weird and ambitious and cosmically complicated book. Yep. Very strange book to adapt. Um, but we'll 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 talk about how well I think we both agree that they did it quite well. Yeah, they did. They really did. And I, I love it. I mean, I read it every couple of years. Do like you? It's my, yeah. I love it so much. Um because I it's um it's weird comfort reading for me apart from the end obviously which mm-hmm. there's num- numerous jokes about um i find it really comforting because it is so that the friendships in it and i love the cutting between the past and the the the, the future and the past i love the way that stephen king does that and it's actually very filmic the way he writes it but yeah i love it and i don't i don't know why and i think it's be- i do well it's the kind of the the childhood nostalgia and the purity of the good moments and the the sheer nightmares of the bad i think may, are just perfect so it's weird it's the only book that i really i go back to repeatedly so this kind of leads into you know the the first question that i wanted to to throw out and it's what is your relationship with stephen king ah oh, can i just make a little heart shape with my hands <laughs> i can't do that very well in a podcast can i <laughs> no, but you know, if you can if you can describe it, I can almost see you do it. <laughs> yeah, I am doing it. I am doing it. Um I I love the books of Stephen King. Um I've talked on a number of different podcasts at length about how much I live, love Stephen King because there is a very specific actually quite cozy Stephen King tone which despite Absolutely. all of its horror mm-hmm. has proper heart and I think um, it's something that obviously something like very current, like Stranger Things, has taken an awful lot from mm-hmm. is this idea of these idealistic childhood summers. Um, they they always they always feel the same. So many of his characters are writers. Um, they all kind of fit into the same world. And even when he kind of goes a fantastical in Dark Tower, which I'm not massively big on, I much prefer his horror, I still feel like he has this sort of central beating heart that good will eventually prevail in a world of horror and there's also a real i'm a really big stephen stephen king fan as well he was very much my my entryway into adult horror fiction you know after after you graduate from goosebumps after you graduate from arl stein and and point horror yeah and (laughs) um and christopher pike you beeline for stephen king which is literally what i did when i was finally allowed into the adult the grown-up section of the library yes Um, (laughs) although did you um 
Did you ever stray into Richard Lehman territory? No, I did not. <laughs> oh I did not. I was aware. It was packed with sex. Oh, Absolutely. God. Literally, it would be a case of the characters would be in a horrific situation and they would just fuck. And obviously, I was like 14 reading this and going, this is... I, this is tremendously exciting, but I'm not sure is quite correct. <laughs> you know what? I think because I was reading a lot of really weird fiction, not as in like weird as a descriptor, but the subgenre of weird fiction. Yeah. And, you know, you could call some of Stephen King's work weird fiction and it's mm. already even it potentially. But that thing that you mentioned before, kind of the heart of it, the the anchoring of it in such a specific and, you know, because of pop culture, because of cinema, such a recognizable experience, which is fundamentally American, but feels global. Yeah. Um, kind of makes it a lot more accessible for people than just the high weird shit that's yes. out there. Totally. When I when I was reading Stephen King as a kid, like I read, I remember the first book I read was Pet Cemetery, and I was about nine. I don't. I think the all the sex stuff really went above my head. Like I, I yeah. read it and I kind of understood what it was, but I didn't really understand what it was. So yeah. I think the Richard Lehman stuff. I was just like, I don't think. This, there's not there's not enough horror here. I'm not into it. It was not okay. No. It wasn't okay. There's a reason that Richard Lehman is no longer a discussion point and potentially was never one, but because he had such cool covers of like the kind of brightly colored, like fun house type mm -hmm. covers, and mm -hmm. you were like, oh, I want that horror. You know, like it looks like sweet shop horror. <laughs> and then you'd read it and go, no, <laughs> this is not sweet shop horror. <laughs> and. Okay, so we're both Stephen King, Stephen King fans, and I'm really intrigued by the fact that it is your comfort book. And before mm -hmm. we really dive into the film, kind of, what do you think is at the heart of the book that makes it both kind of very difficult to adapt, even though it's been adapted twice for the screen, for TV and for film, the ones that we're going to talk about, but it is one of those King texts that should be impenetrable. It's yes. over a thousand pages long. It is very sprawling. Uh, it's very ambitious and, and has a very, people forget about this, but it's essentially cosmic horror at the, yes. at the end of it. What is the beating heart of it that you think kind of s makes it one of King's biggest titles? It's, it, despite the fact that everyone goes on and on about the clown, um, mm -hmm. people, I think a lot of people don't really understand that the heart of, the fear of it is that it's a fear chameleon that fits to your fears, which mm -hmm. means the other side of that is human and it's about the relationships. So it is about these, it is about the Losers Club in both the past and the present. And they are such magnificent characters and their interactions. And I think we wouldn't be able to almost take on the cosmic horror if it wasn't for them. And I think I've been through a progression with the book because it used to be when I was, I must have first read it when I was a teenager, I would I didn't like all that there was sort of the interludes, which were yeah. the, all the histories of Derry, which were really quite dense and away from the characters and they would really go into the past and all the things that had ever happened in the town, which actually now I find just as fascinating because it means that Derry exists in a world of which all of the horrific stuff happens and there's some really interesting cosmic horror in there and really interesting character interactions and the building of a the building of a city of absolute doom basically mm -hmm. and it actually only enhances the rest of the book but obviously when you're younger you're like oh I just want to go with the characters where they're mm -hmm. having fun together but I think that's why you can keep going back to it and keep feeling the humanity of it in this cosmically horrific world which happens to have a scary clown as one of the faces of its many-headed nastiness i guess 
I mean, it, the book and and the films themselves as well, I think are, but the book specifically, because, you know, it's it's created in the imagination of the reader, is in its own way a chameleon of fear, right? Because if you yep. read it as a teenager, you identify with the younger version of the characters, as you said, mm-hmm. you skip over all the world building. But the idea of a city that is seeped in malice and seeped in evil and is this mm-hmm. hotbed, this hotspot where evil will always show its head and rear its head and will essentially infect all the citizens of it whether they leave or whether they stay in Derry is a fascinating yep. concept and it's like kind of there in the foreground of yeah. of the book and of the film as well but it's not the thing that people latch on to because it's a bit more abstract than just a scary clown who wants to eat children yeah and it's something that the movie these movies actually managed to really touch on like Mm -hmm. there's the scene where ben is on the bridge and belch is trying to draw on his stomach yeah and a car drives past with grown-ups in it and in the ideal world grown-ups will save you and they just look and they go past and a little bit obviously just to accentuate the point a red balloon arrives in the back of the car but Mm -hmm. it doesn't actually need to because it creates a world of i think this is another thing it does when it's in the childhood sections, it does that thing of adults are just in the periphery. They're mm-hmm. not really involved. It mm-hmm. is a child's world. And I think the powerlessness of that is, well, the grown-ups won't help us. And I think mm-hmm. that's a really good universal sort of horror idea is the kids need to save the day because the grown-ups don't listen. Before, I, I want to ask about the the moment in time when the adaptation of it came out. But before that, can you... And we will be, you know, for the for the listeners, we will be essentially, I think, at this point, it's been a few years since both the films came out. Yep. I think it's one cohesive story that is presented over two very long films. Yes, it is. So we're just going to talk about it as one cohesive story, you know, as if it were one five-hour-long film. And I think that's actually, with having just watched them both together mm-hmm. as a five-hour-long mm-hmm. film how it should have been and i and i think actually and and i actually have kind of changed my attitude to chapter two since i watched them both together Mm -hmm. um because you get a clearer (laughs) so wanky as it sounds the vision of what andy machete was trying to do you actually get much clearer when you put them together and obviously they shot the second one Two years after they had mm-hmm. to digitally de-age the actors, like very they had funny, to do all, yeah. yeah, they had yeah. to because kids are kids, and that's the problem. If you don't get your funding for two movies, you're going to have to do this. And I do think that they they managed to actually, you know, pull it off in a way. But I do think it should have been an eight hour, and there obviously is coming a TV series. Mm-hmm. I do think it should have been an eight hour series. I because... I I kind of agree. I mean, I actually think that it's for the ambitions of adapting this book in particular. Yep. I'm almost baffled that they didn't that they didn't do it as a mini series, but at the same time I'm kind of glad because what it did and you know, well, I'm going to I'm going to hold that thought and come back to it after we kind of set the scene for what it is just to remind people of what it is because the fact that it was a movie, I think, is actually a very, very important decision. And yep. I also rewatched um um couple a couple of weeks ago back to back kind of fully you know one after another in one day and experiencing the whole thing as a whole as a whole story as opposed to you know watching one on a big screen and then two years later watching the next one that's it uh, it's it's an it's a completely different it takes on a completely different shape i think totally totally yep. like a chameleon itself and yes. how strange oh my god it's almost like there's a theme 
Oh, it's almost like they also put it out 27 years after the last It adaptation. <laughs> oh. Mm. <laughs> so for anyone who's not rewatched the two It movies over five hours like we did, can you please summarize uh, the story of It briefly before we dig into it? So it is set over chapter one, chapter two is mm -hmm. set in 19, the 1980s, which was actually moved from the original 1950s of the Stephen King book. And it um, is about six kind of, they're kind of the outsiders who come together. They become the losers club, um, these kids, and they kind of uncover what has been lurking in Derry for a long time, which is a, an evil that arrives every 27 years and basically kills children and hunts people and basically just swallows them up and then disappears so it's set um in the 80s and then it's also set in the present day when it turns out they didn't kill it the first time around and they've come back and they're now grown-ups and they're having to remember their past and still tackle this horrific thing that morphs itself into their greatest fears beautiful you're so good at summaries Thanks. I was just gazing at my Haunted Mansion Lego and being like, please keep talking. You're going the right way. <laughs> I'm sure this is right. Um, so I made, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but I want to talk about the, the adaptation of it a little bit and the choice to adapt it as a movie and what that kind of the moment of which it came because the first uh it part chapter one which is the one with the kids primarily uh, came out in 2017 it chapter two comes out in 2019 so we've talked a little bit about the book but what is the anticipation for adapting the most sprawling and and very culturally beloved Stephen King book, but one that has only had one small screen, very low budget, very heavily censored um, miniseries adaptation in 1990. How anticipated and what are the expectations placed on the big screen adaptation of It? Oh, it was huge. And it, was, it wasn't just huge because it was a Stephen King book. So Stephen King fans are finally going, wow, I'm going to get a big screen version of my favorite Stephen King book. It was also the mythology mm -hmm. which has been created around the idea of Pennywise. Yes. Tim Curry's Pennywise, obviously, in the series had such uh, almost urban legend, like creepy pasta effect on people because people kind of said, oh, I watched it too young and it was really, really scary and that still gives me nightmares. And I'm one of those people. Yeah. And, and a lot of those people hadn't read it. You mm -hmm. know, people didn't have any, they didn't have any, they knew it was based, maybe they knew, they knew it was based in a Stephen King book, but at the same time, they're primarily, they're afraid of these images of, of Tim Curry, basically. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, that kind of jars in them because that was what they experienced when they were young. Again, that nostalgia and that fear also plays on the anticipation of what a big screen version is. Because if that's one of your formative fears, and if that's sitting in the back of your head as something you're afraid of, and you're suddenly an adult, and you're like, I'm still afraid of that thing. And now it's, you know, 2019, uh, mm -hmm. 2017, and I am still afraid. And now it's, you know, coming out in the landscape of... The conjurings, the insidiouses, the sinisters. <laughs> we know what modern horror looks like, and mm -hmm. if you then suddenly look at that through a, a lens of, but what's it? What? What? How? How does it look now? I think there's the anticipation is enormous, huge, almost insurmountable, and the fact mm -hmm. that the first film does so well, and obviously, I think, I mean, you'll have the stats there, I assume, but didn't it make literally more money than any horror for years? It was the highest-grossing horror film ever. 
actually. There you go. That's um, the one. <laughs> which which was a massive, I think, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about the um we'll talk about the landscape of horror in a minute, but I wanted to mention as well the the fact that it is it not only because of Pennywise and the cultural impact of that, you know, if anybody's not rewatched the miniseries for a while, it's not good, no. but it is very memorable. Yes. And I'm I'm not sure if I've ever told the story on this podcast. I probably have elsewhere, but that was an image that I was terrified of well into my twenties. I made the I watched maybe 10 minutes, the first 10 minutes of the adaptation when I was like nine and I started screaming. And at this point, nine or 10, and at this point I was already watching horror movies consistently yeah. and still something about Tim Curry's Pennywise just absolutely not deep inside of me. And I just could not, I could not watch it. I closed my eyes. I shut my ears. I would, I would not stop screaming. I was at a friend's house until she put it out, put the VHS in its box, put the box away. And I could, I could not be near it. Like I would wow. be terrified just even with the image of it, the poster of it, it would send shivers down my spine. And I made a conscious, I read the book and it was, mm. it, it kind of, you know, calmed that fear down because the book is its an entire own being. But the image of Pennywise was so deeply ingrained in my brain. It made the conscious effort when I was in my first or second year of uni, literally 19 or 20, to sit down all lights on and watch it and I had to leave the door open I had to make sure my flatmate was home like I needed to take all these precautions to watch yeah. this miniseries that is really tame <laughs> but it was it was still scary because of that insane way that it burrows your way it, its way into your head so the expectation around it and I think kind of also it was around the time where Stephen King was getting adapted more and more mm -hmm. uh, around this time in 2016, 2017. I think this is also roughly the time where I did a, a BFI season on adaptations of Stephen King works, which was curated by friend and colleague Michael Blythe. And, and I did a number of events uh, around King as well. And he co-curated uh, he curated a strand of films that was scary to hit that was scary for him, which was really mm -hmm. fun. But it was the time where people were talking again about Stephen King and movies and TV. And everybody was kind of going back and adapting his work, readapting it. But this was the expectation for this. And I mentioned the kind of the fact that it was movies and not TV, even though television and horror TV was already happening quite a lot. Still, there is there is such a much bigger landscape of possibilities with film in the sense of just... Uh, censorship and mm -hmm. limitations and scope and even budget at this point this is a big budget horror movie this yeah. is big cast sprawling cast and they because of stranger things i think yeah there had reignited this imagery of the kids solving horrific something horrific by yep. themselves which is yep. very which is very from the 80s and kind of 90s but not so much from the 2000s but Stranger Things really catapulted kind of that nostalgia back into the mainstream in a big way. And it I was I was really terrified of how of whether they were gonna fuck up the story or not. Yeah. Because they could either go to they could either choose to tame it, because the yes. book is very explicit, very foul mouthed. The kids are really are very, you know, on we'll talk about it later, but the kids are kind of nasty in their own way, in a really kid way. 
Well, that thing I found really interesting because obviously, and this is not a plug for it, but you can obviously listen to all five episodes of Hello, Sydney. I thought on this rewatch that I realized that they have that Kevin Williamson approach to the kids. Yes. They are nasty and wicked. And although they are having a lot of them, are they're very sweet with each other. They're mm. also not sweet with each other. And also mm-hmm. the, there's something like there's a ridiculous number of swears in this. Oh, yeah. It's, it's absurd. It's ri- absolutely absurd. Richie is probably responsible for half of them. Yeah, at least half. But yeah, I, I thought about that and I thought they're actually, they're wicked children. And that's yes. great. And, and But, and importantly, they have fears and flaws mm-hmm. and they are, aren't eventually afraid to talk about those fears and how overwhelming they are. And I think that's what's key and that's what saves them from mm. being totally objectionable because sometimes I do think Finn Wolfhard errs into just there's slightly too many of those comedy interjections, but I do think mm. the rest of the kids kind of make up for that. So I think this is a good point for us to talk about the kids mainly. And uh, I just want to preface this as well to say it might be... Uh, a, a strange choice to put this in a teen horror series but I think these kids actually sit perfectly in that cusp between we're not kids anymore but we're not seen as sort of teenagers because they yes. they also I'd, I'd love to like all the kids but also they all look quite different so some of them you know people hit puberty at different stages so some of them look like teenagers some of them look like nine-year-old kids yep. but they're all the same age they're all hanging out together they're all desperately trying to be kind of older than they actually are they're yeah. right at that peak stage like the 12 13 uh years where you're like i want to be a teenager i don't want to be yep. a kid anymore so actually I think for multiple reasons that we'll get into the It movies, uh, the first chapter in particular, falls very neatly into the teen horror tradition. But it's obviously so much more. So let's talk about the kids themselves, the Losers Club. Bill, Beverly, Mike, Richie, Eddie, Ben, Stanley. Like who, what do you, what do you make of their dynamic and of them individually and how the film treats them? You know, I love all of them mm-hmm. in their own ways. And I didn't, and I think that was another thing of the anticipation when I was, before I watched it. Obviously, by this point, I don't know how many times I'd read it. And I already have those characters pre built mm-hmm. in that horrible bookish way. But I loved them all. I thought they were great. I especially love the casting of um of Beverly. Sophie, is it Sophia yes. or Sophie? Sophia, Sophia Ellis. Sophia Lillis, yeah. Um, I, I, I like. I think from the from the get go, she is just electric. I think the first scene of her sitting on that toilet stall and and literally the, there's a lovely shot of her putting her, her cigarette out on the wall and just looking utterly like not again, where she's mm. simultaneously old and knowing, but also a child. Yeah, and I think she's absolutely glowing in that. And she's also again in the sequence with the the first time they interact and she's signing the yearbook Mm -hmm. I think it's the sweetest loveliest thing and I genuinely think they're the most amazing introductions to those specific characters um yeah I I, I'm actually mostly in love with all of them and I love the sweetness of Ben as well Mm -hmm. at at both ages actually yeah yeah I, I really like them I really like what you mentioned about Beverly because she has she does have that 
resigned glow of yeah. somebody who doesn't know that they're good because everyone around them in her home and in her school keeps telling her that there's some that she's bad that there's yes. something wrong with her i remember in that introduction scene when she's putting out the cigarette she's putting out a cigarette on on a someone writing that she's a slut in uh in her yeah. in her in the bathroom stalls and it's just this resigned acceptance that I know this isn't me, but this is what they think of me. And I just have yep. to get through it. Just power yeah. through. It doesn't... Same shit, different day look. Yeah. Yeah. The fight is no longer worth it. Yeah. And do you think... Because we're introduced to the losers individually, and some of them are friends already, and some of them, like Ben and Beverly, are kind of outsiders and are, are brought into... And Mike, and are brought into the group later on. How do you think kind of they all individually fare be before they are connected to one another? You know, I think it's on rewatch. I do find it. Um, I feel like it was it started out as a longer film where they had. Wow. Um, I feel like especially with the introductions to them, mm -hmm. because obviously they have to fit in who these characters are, but also that they're having that they're afraid of things and that they are already being hunted by whatever is there you know mm -hmm. we see the first time we pretty much see stanley with that horrific painting creature in that office mm -hmm. and we we have to so we have to go through these set pieces and i do feel like it has to somewhat rush these introductions because but but what it thankfully doesn't do is it doesn't just have them all friends initially because what is partly what is so rich about the book is them all finding each other yes. because finding those friendships is important and they happen through really sort of random ways you know they, they meet Ben because he's really beaten up because he's being bullied and they, 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 it all kind of flows in a sort of fate almost it mm -hmm. would be easy if they were already a unit but they're not they have to come together and that's part of what their power is is they find each other and they come together so I think the film has to actually kind of rush that before they are then friends and then fighting things you know mm -hmm. and I think there was probably a lot more quieter scenes I think that were probably cut from it so I think it deals fine but I do feel like it's a bit like here's a scary thing in this character here's a scary thing in this character <laughs> because it just it has to get it all in there and it and it it has to slightly rush I feel it does take a lot of time in in presenting what they're afraid of whether they acknowledge it or not and the other thing that kind of makes it so i think endearing in a way is because when you're growing up a you're afraid of a lot of things but you don't necessarily want to can or have the ability to articulate what it is that you're afraid of in a way that you some people not all people learn to do when they grow up um therapy for everyone please and thank say, you the therapy please therapy yes, for everyone um how do you think the film deals when with when they're kids uh preteens kind of how do you think the film deals with showing us what they're afraid of Oh, I think it does. It does it with big, broad brushstrokes, mm. I think, really. Um, but that's okay, because when you're a kid, sometimes those things are what scares you. Um, I noticed that in the book, Stanley has an interaction because he likes birds. He has a really weird interaction with a giant bird, and I understand yeah. why they, <laughs> I understand why they replaced it with a painting, because yep. I feel like it would have been at the start of that movie, 
hitting out with the giant birds would have been mm-hmm. a bit early, which is a shame because genuinely in the book that was terrifying. You know, he ends up hiding in a pipe from a like a giant sparrow or something, which is amazing and bizarre and surreal and very king. Um, so I think it does it. I think it does a good job of, of showing their insecurities, and I think that's why it feels all the more powerful when you put them together. Um, I I do think that the depictions of those I could have they're very they became very CG. Mm. And I do think that lessens it because if you think about that first, uh, the first, we haven't even talked about the bloody terrifying and utterly perfect first scene with oh. Georgie. Yeah, uh, because we'll it, get is, to it. it is spot on. And the reason that it's spot on is because it's it's relatively simple because it is just Skarsgård in a gutter as Pennywise. And he doesn't need to do tremendously. Like, there's there doesn't need to be any massive CG. He's just this mm-hmm. drooling, terrifying thing. But later on in both movies, they're just like, well, we can do this, so we will. And it all just gets a bit, it, it doesn't have that real feeling. It, it looks very polished. And I think sometimes that takes away from what is actually base fears are more realistic. Well, there's, before I get into some of the things that you mentioned, just in the first scene, I think it's so successful for numerous reasons, not just because it's perfectly pitched and directed and just mm. well-made, but because again, it's that it's the first appearance of Pennywise, and it's almost not shot for shot, but it echoes the the way that the scene in the miniseries was shot. Yeah. So it instantly kind of conjures up the images of Tim Curry because we're not yet fully seeing Pennywise, fully full bodied, full face. Even he's still seen through the drain. So it almost feels like the fear from the 1990 series is peeking back out again yeah the other thing that i think really makes it impactful as a first scene in general is that georgie dies yeah and children are not supposed to die in movies (sighs) it's why my girl traumatized a whole generation yep children are not in general shouldn't die as kids but in movies it's kind of an unspoken thing we're like well the The protagonist will never die and the kid will never die because of course we're going to save the kids because the idea of us filming a child's death is just a bit too horrific to deal with. Definitely not in our entertainment. So the fact that this film, the story, both the book, miniseries and this, these films open with this. And the kid is just so like little Paddington bear size and his little (laughs) yellow raincoat just doing this again a very kind of now naive and nostalgic way of playing around by himself is dead within 10 minutes the first 10 minutes of the film is a horrific way to start it just me it it just sets you up for i think for audiences that are not familiar with king or with it all these kids are at risk of dying yeah bets are off and i also think like i remember i wrote in my notes when i was watching that going this is just as horrific Mm -hmm. as it was the in fact i find it more horrific and it's not it's yes also because the child dies but we you know it's like don't fuck with cats isn't it but um (laughs) the suffering shown it doesn't just go glom yeah it eats his arm and then he is in his little paddington bear yellow jacket on the ground in the rain dragging himself away from a gutter without an arm and screaming now that's that's really horrific so not mm-hmm. only does a child die but you watch active horrific suffering while an adult you know kind of gazes out the window and just sees a kid playing doesn't really look out again and the cat's the one that watches it is genuinely it's horrifying 
it's really horrifying. And I'm really almost quite glad that while that doesn't really happen again, not like that, because all it had to do was do that once. Mm -hmm. And all you'll think is this could happen again, this could happen, but thankfully doesn't really, you know, in the, in the same level of absolute suffering. God. Let's move on from Georgie. I can't handle Georgie until he reappears no, again. And the second one is a little <laughs> zombie. Zombie it. Little zombie guy. Oh, dear. God, you're so right. But going going back to a couple of points that you mentioned before when talking about kind of the fears and how they're expressed in the, in the film. There's a style that Andy Muschietti has, a style of horror that, you know, you can see a direct through line through his previous film, Mama, which also yes. has Jessica Chastain. You know, the very thin, slightly distorted monsters, mm -hmm. very much here. But there is there is a weird balance, I think, that kind of works for me between the, the CGI'd and jump-scary visualization of fears, the big monsters, and then the very, very bloody kind of not quite body horror but messy horror yeah, messy. and i'm thinking specifically of bev again and the scene when she is you know just the the sink in her bathroom erupts with blood and fills everything up yeah i think that's one of the most effective ones for me because because of that because it's it's not a monster it's everything the space is horrifying to her being covered in this sludge that she cannot get off Yep. But that nobody else can see. Yeah. Ah. Uh, uh, I think so. If we're going for, uh, can we choose our scariest fears moment from the start? So Let's is that do yours? It. Is that yours? Yeah, that's mine. Okay. So, as well as I don't really like teeth, the other thing that I really, really don't like <laughs> don't is really headless like things. Is headless things. Okay. I have a headless things phobia, and I think it came from watching. <laughs> The cartoon of Sleepy Hollow when I was too young. <laughs> okay. The Headless Horseman scares the shit out of me. I also yeah. love Sleepy Hollow, the Tim Burton version, because yeah. it's wonderful. So the scene when Ben is in the library and mm -hmm. he's reading about the horrible disaster mm -hmm. that was just the, the was meant to be the lovely Easter hunt at the factory, which then blew up and killed 110 children, mm -hmm. blowing a head into a tree. So his scare is literally, there's this little Easter egg there and then he goes down into the basement of the library and he is faced with a headless boy. And not only is the headless boy absolutely terrifying, mm -hmm. the movement of the boy. So it's oh, yeah. this kind of like disjointed, puppet style, relentless, slightly too fast. It's like the opposite of my yeah. fear of sloths. There's, they move too slow and the headless thing moves too fast. So it was just, it is, that to me was just a cacophony of, yes, I understand this is slightly CG'd stuff, but it's, it scares the hell out of me because Muschietti, you're absolutely right, understands the perfect nightmare logic. And that's mm. what he completely hits out with on, on a regular. You know, he, his nightmare logic of things being oversized or moving in the wrong way or being sped up or being too just wrong mm -hmm. it's just he always gets it spot on but yeah that that headless scuttle of that child down the rows oh my god uh, 
And also, I think that same scuttle, that movement, also applies to Pennywise too. We'll talk yes. about him in a bit, but there is there is sort of like a shift in um, almost playback speeds. Like sometimes yeah. he's going at zero point seven, sometimes he's at one one point one, then sometimes he's like one point eight, yeah. and he shifts very quickly between all speeds. I think that's a that's a that's a machete film because he deploys it so much throughout both films, and you never know which one he's gonna go. Is it gonna be a full you know shining like bathing of blood is it gonna be uh, a zombified little child is it gonna be slow moving is it gonna be fast moving is it gonna be a jump scare is it gonna be like a a giant monster that's almost goofy looking he kind of pulls out all the punches which i think is you know if there were such a thing as a as a one size fits all horror movie i'd say it probably is it and actually, Something's gonna stick. Yeah, something I will stick. I actually don't. I think that the best thing about horror movies is the fact that there is something that's individually terrifying for everyone. You just have to yeah. kind of find it, even if you can't necessarily articulate it. But yeah. it kind of does everything. Yeah, yeah, and everyone will find a different thing. And again, that's again what it's about is that mm. we are all afraid of different things. And and it'll be funny because you know some people might look at that sequence and be like, oh, I thought that was just silly. Meanwhile. Yeah. This other one, balloon, you know, like, and suddenly you're like, oh yes, so this is for everyone. For me, it's actually outside of outside of the scene with um with Beverly and the blood because it's it's also rooted in the fact that she's living um with her abusive father. So like, there's yes. a real life horror there that informs this. And the, the thing that's terrifying to me is the fact that he walks in and he doesn't see it. Yeah, it's just such a it's such a beautiful metaphor, I think, for how yeah. she's feeling, but. The other ones that I'm mostly terrified of are not really the jump scares. They're the ones where something pops up in the background and doesn't go away. So it's in the library with Ben where he starts seeing the head Mm -hmm. as he turns the pages. And it's also when they're watching the video, uh, they're projecting the video. Oh my gosh, the slide, the slide show, Anna. Oh my God. Oh, I thought it was uh, like in my head as a video because like it moves up, but you're right. It's a slideshow. And then like Pennywise just starts moving a tiny bit and then it's a little bit quicker. And then he leaves the screen. Things pop. I know this isn't going to happen, but things popping out of the screen is not for me. No. That again, that, that, the, the idea that you said that was a video is really interesting, isn't it? Because it's that machete thing. And it's actually, a, it's like a machete branded like flick book. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. That's what it is. It's like you want to stop flicking because mm-hmm. you're just like, please, mm-hmm. I don't want to see what happens next. And that's interesting you're saying coming out of the screen because um, I was re-watching Insidious oh, for yeah. Mike. And there is a point in that where there is a character, it's already quite horrible. There's a character like walking on a balcony outside. And it's already quite scary because it's a sort of a, a sort of cloaked figure. And then all of a sudden, the next frame is the character is walking inside. So it's it's that kind of scare of any time you think uh, an evil thing is where it's meant to be, coming even closer because the next stage of that is it coming out to us. So it's almost like a mm-hmm. staged. It's a. It's almost. It's a. It's a. It's like a teased fourth wall break mm. almost because it's like if it can come through that, it can come through this and you're not safe either. Mm-hmm. And it's like a base fear that is just so good. It's so good. And how do you think the second film, which has the adult losers club, like Bar Stanley, RIP, um, how do you think it replicates or reimagines these very same fears, but now with the characters as adults? Do you know, I think I think it actually does really well 
Mm. Um, I think, again, it is a sequential series of terrifying shorts, which at points, <laughs> some of which work and some of which don't. Um, but I do think they managed to re-harness it every time they come back together, almost. Before, I didn't think it worked at all. Before, mm. I was really sad about chapter two. But actually now, having re-watched it and having had negative thoughts about it before, I actually think it's the only way that they could have finished chapter one. Um, but I love the, I think one thing I have to say is I adore the casting. Mm. The casting oh is God. absolutely perfect. It's so perfect. And did you, did you know that the kids actually input into the casting of yeah, the adult chose. versions yeah. of them? Yeah. Which is why, um, I, I apparently, um, Finn Wolfhard was like, Bill Hader, please. Bill Hader. What a and great he, choice. And he got it. And he, he did. Got it. And Bill Hader is the best thing about chapter two. Hands yes, out. Yes, he is. And Jessica Chastain. I love her. And yeah, she's I do very love good. Her. Yes. Be- Becky Dark, our mutual friend and friend of the pod, absolutely hates her. Does she? We'll never I mean, forgive her for it. <laughs> I didn't know that. I'm going to have to. I was literally texting her last night. What? No. Oh, dear. She, she hates Chastain. <laughs> Why? I, oh, I, won't, I, listen, I don't get it. I don't get it. No. No. I'll but w- maybe we'll, we, can, we can get Becky Dark's input. I'll ask her to <laughs> message me a voice note <laughs> so we can include it here. <laughs> Why, to, Becky? Why? To, bal- why? to off-balance the Chastain love. I love Chastain. Yeah, I love Chastain too. I know you mentioned it kind of feels like sequential moments, but is there any one particular one as adults that that works? Or does it mm. does it feel a little bit too, too muschetti, too CGI? Okay. okay, in which case, I know you are leading me <laughs> to the Chastain sequence, which I love the start of as she arrives at her old house and it's this mm-hmm. old woman sitting there and you know that it's awful and you know that it's nasty and you know that it smells horrific in there and the light's horrible and they're sweating and drinking tea that you just wouldn't drink because you don't know where it came from. And then it becomes, there's the weird sequence where she goes in, she's looking at the little postcard from Ben and I think it's that point where there's just suddenly the woman is naked and you're like, mm-hmm. what the fuck? This And that's still scary. But then arrives as a giant elongated cg thing mm-hmm. which i think takes uh, for a moment it's it does that nightmare transfer mm-hmm. as she's trying to desperately escape but i do think it maybe errs slightly too far into the ludicrous because up until then it felt very well paced it felt very you know genuinely laced with dread and i'm not sure that's the punchline for that specific sequence but i, I respect it nonetheless I I actually this is one of the sequences that I remember liking the most yeah. when I first watched it and I've completely turned on it since my rewatch. Right. Uh not least because of the, you know, the elongated old lady uh vibes which is basically mama but reimagined. Yes. But then also I started thinking what I mean any any stranger in a dingy apartment that is actually your childhood apartment where you used to get abused will be creepy just by yes. association. But there is something, and maybe it's, I'm working on something, uh, and and maybe I've just like been more attuned to it. So when I watch it, it's like, why is it inherently creepy uh, that it's an old woman? Yeah. Why is it inherently creepy that it's an old woman's body? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not yeah. so much the fact My that problems she, with X. <laughs> Yeah, Come it, in here. <laughs> I I think there is like a, a tendency, uh, and I think Muschietti has kind of done it in his previous work too. But I'm not I'm not finger pointing at him. I think it's a it's a trope in horror yeah. that old women are creepy by default. So if you have an old woman in in a in a film that is associated with horror, she she's got something wrong with her. 
Yes. yes. And that I found like suddenly I'm like, why is that scary? Like you, that's not necessarily inherently terrifying. I think the house is creepy. Yeah. And the actress does a really good job of playing up the creepy. But the fact that it's the thing that is scary to Bev, adult Bev, is a naked old woman. It's effectively an old woman. Yeah. Yeah. I just find a bit like, really? Oh, just so saggy tits is the, is the fear? That's yeah. That's it? It's... I think that especially of the CG moment basically just does that because it's like, and you're suddenly like, oh, okay, no, <laughs> just, just no. Cause this, that you're right. That environment is inherently, is inherently creepy. It looks mm-hmm. creepy. It feels creepy. The the idea of returning to it is, and I like the suggestion, almost like a, uh, the past for Pennywise, mm-hmm. just like my father was in the circus. And I enjoyed that weird imagery of him kind of hunched over. I don't even know mm-hmm. what he was working on before turning around and drooling. There's a whole lot of drooling, really scary drooling mm-hmm. from Pennywise. Um, but yeah, there's um, there there are hints of really good stuff, but then it is absolutely it, it sits in tropes, and then it triples down on that trope with a giant CG elongated fest. Hmm. I think the. There is something, I think Bill Hader is a standout in chapter two for multiple reasons, but I think the way that he's, his scene is almost recreating the one that he had as a kid, the Richie, the Richie experience as a kid. But now because we understand a bit more of, of Richie as an adult, it's, it takes on a, another level because of the thing that I mentioned before that sometimes when you're kids, you can't really articulate the thing you're afraid of. You just know that you're afraid of it for some reason. And then as an adult, it it gains more meaning and it becomes more entrenched and linked to your personality. And I think the the transformation or the fears of Richie have not really changed since he was a kid. Mm. And and I don't know, when I was re-watching it, like the I was very moved by Bill Hader's performance, but I do wish it was um I don't know, I wanted more time with him. Yeah. Because of that, yeah. because I think that the way that he was um hiding himself from himself Mm-hmm. And that being transformed into a fear, and this one, you know, the figure of the the Paul Bunyan, um, yeah. massive statue, was so coherent from chapter one to chapter two. I was like, I yeah. I almost wanted a bit more time spent with Richie understanding why why this is the thing that he's afraid of. Yeah, and I because it's it's suggested, isn't it? And again, I bet there was more. I bet there was more shock. Yeah, I bet there was more shock because, and because him crying at the end is one of the most moving parts of it mm-hmm. because it's very unmovie like. Because what tends to happen mm-hmm. when everybody gets to the end of a movie is everybody's happy, and mm-hmm. it's almost like they've completely forgot that they might have lost a number of their members <laughs> to get there, and they're like, "Yay, we survived!" But he just he despairs and cries, mm-hmm. and I think he is for all of his laws, one of the very, very human characters and very, very layered characters. But I, I also am really glad that they kept that from the book because, again, like mm-hmm. the giant bird, that sequence could have been seen as looking quite silly, the mm-hmm. idea of a giant statue coming to life, when actually it's all it's one of all of our very base fears is, oh, that's weird because it's oversized and strange. I would hate that to come to life. <laughs> you know, it's a very, it's a very childlike fear, but it's um it yeah it carries into that second one beautifully. And there's something that you mentioned right at the start of our conversation about how the, both the story of it, the book, the movie deals with memories and memory, but not nostalgia necessarily. 
But I wanted to ask, how do you think chapter two in particular calls back to chapter one and deals with the memories of these characters? But especially coming in a point, it's it's kind of a broad broad and specific question, coming in a point where nostalgia has become such a go-to mechanism Mm -hmm. for horror. And of course, Stranger Things has a massive impact here. But nostalgia is not necessarily the exploration of memory or what that Mm. means for characters or for us as audiences. But that's what chapter two is all about. The characters, they all leave Derry except Mike, who becomes a librarian and the keeper of their shared memories in a way. Mm-hmm. And he brings them all back, except Stanley, RIP. And what do you think kind of the role of memories, the fact that they lose their memories until they come back to Derry and then have to rediscover them through their fears? How does that play into the the horror of what it is? What? Can I preface this? I think it's very interesting because structurally, when they made the first movie, they didn't mm-hmm. know that they were going to get to make the second True. movie. But they had to have an idea. They had to have a, a way that they could have chapter two. When actually the book itself is pretty much, it goes back and forth all the time. So you're constantly flipping back and forth. And while the characters have forgotten in the future and the, their act of remembering is when we go back in, what they had to do with this what they had to do with the structure of these movies was go well how are we going to do that how are we going to have them do that and they basically had to restructure the narrative so that in the second one they had to have a reason to go looking for these memories so they bring up this kind of we all need to go and find our artifact individually and it's kind mm. of like suddenly you need to go and get these six macguffins to come back and beat the thing right but those macguffins are the memories and i think that was actually probably the smartest way that they could have addressed such a complex tome that they'd broken into not knowing that they'd get to make the second mm-hmm. one so actually i think that's a very artful use of structure and mm-hmm. narrative mm-hmm. when when king's text is so insurmountable in many ways so i think they did it first off i think they did an amazing job with that but i did enjoy the idea of gradually remembering your past because we do remember through items and things i think the power of your surroundings we all experience it and they, and they also touch on it a lot you know they go into the library mm-hmm. and uh, bill says didn't this used to be bigger and they are the kind of feelings that you get when you return to your where you were from where you mm-hmm. were born mm-hmm. and i think having to then explore these places and see what's changed over time because they're it's very relatable. You know, you, you walk down a street that you walked down when you were 10 and it's still the same street, but it's also not. And you'll you'll focus on the tiny things that were the same. Um, and the discovery of obviously Bill finding silver, suddenly he literally touches those handlebars mm-hmm. and he is transformed back. And those are the things that we find when, you know, you open a cupboard and you find all your kids stuff or you find something you loved as a teenager and then you touch it and you feel all those memories. So actually I think it's very, as you say, not nostalgic and focused instead of the experiences we have as children that we forget until we have to remember because we can't remember everything. And a lot of the times, if we've been through grief, if we've been through heartbreak, we actually want to avoid purposefully avoid those things because we don't want to feel those feelings again because it's so overwhelming. And this is basically a, a series of characters having to forcibly go through that whether they like it or not Mm. and those results that they find either being positive in some cases as Beverly remembers how she felt about Bill um or negative in the fact that then we go into these nightmarish thoughts so I think it's a I think it's a a very deft Mm 
mm-hmm. interplay of memory. And there is a, you know, you mentioned Nightmare Logic before, which is such a, I think, an under-discussed staple of horror yes. films. You yes. know, the whole premise of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, uh, I'd, I'd even argue Hellraiser as, mm-hmm. a, as a franchise, also kind of function on this idea of this doesn't fully make sense, but it, ne- it makes sense in the worst possible nightmarish situations i think it's the the darker side of dream logic right which can be fabulous and lovely um and you can jump really high and you can do all sorts of things and you know if you're if you can lucid dream or you know how to do lucid dreaming it's amazing um but there is a sort of a forcedness to nightmare logic where the logic of of horror and of nightmares is forced upon you you can't control Mm -hmm. it in a way that perhaps you could with lighter dream or lucid dreaming And and I have that sense here a lot, even though it's not, you know, on the surface, I don't think it presents itself as such. But I think Pennywise, I think this might be a good moment for us to move into talking about Pennywise. Pennywise is essentially Nightmare Logic made flesh. Yes. It's really interesting. We all, we've always mentioned Pennywise as a clown. I think, you know, when we, when we started speaking, it is that the cultural impact of Tim Curry's performance uh in fact the cultural impact was so large that the whole kind of uh, paranoia about creepy clowns pretty mm-hmm. much started with it totally. there's a there's a there's a podcast that actually goes into it into creepy clown sightings into um people being terrified of of clowns by default as opposed to being entertained by them kind of goes there's two people that go hand in hand there's tim curry's performance as pennywise and there's john wayne gacy the serial killer yes. who moonlighted as a clown um I'll, I'll leave it in the show notes because it's a great it's a great podcast but what is the power of Pennywise? And I mean that not Pennywise, the creature and, and kind of the narrative and the story, but kind of why is he so scary for everyone in different ways? You mean as that one in that one form of that clone or the bit underneath? Because kind I think of both. Yeah. So I think what's particularly and and I like the fact that these movies actually look at those different things, the different things he becomes. Like, I'm not quite sure, as as described in the text, the leper for Eddie is a particularly odd one, um, but something that he's obviously afraid of because he's afraid of germs and disease and all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the reason that... Uh, I think the, the podcast that you discussed will obviously go into the fact that it's the, the conversion of something that should be innocent and should be fun. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the the idea of a clown that is evil is inherently troubling because it's meant to, it's the it's the, the sort of bastardization of what that should actually be is entertaining and nice and fun and actually not want to kill you and eat your arms but i think what's underneath that as the sort of fear chameleon that we're discussing mm-hmm. is the fact that it is universal and he is terrifying and but what i think is interesting especially about Skarsgård performance here is he is very he's sort of animalistic he starts off playful and he actually has conversations um, mm-hmm. about that he knows your secrets. He, The poor little girl in chapter two that has the birthmark on her face, oh, God. that's what he preys on. He's like, oh, we can just make that go away. Why would you do that? I've got marks on my face. And he, he is a relatable monster. He tries to be relatable with them to the point where they're like, oh, maybe this isn't so bad. And that's his playful side before he transforms into the monster that he is. Um, and... I hadn't really realized it before, but there's a moment that he always does, which is this kind of, the the creature does is this pause 
mm-hmm. and almost like he's kind of loading. <laughs> like there's just this eerie, utter stillness mm-hmm. before transforming into the animalistic monster that just needs to feed on children. Um, so I think that's where the fear lies is it's, it tries to have a human face and when it doesn't work as a human face, it will eat you with its layers of teeth. I think this is where the the cosmic horror of it all comes in, right? The Lovecraftian aspect of it, which is yes. perhaps a little bit too um, high-minded. But as you were speaking, I was I was remembering the scenes of Pennywise that genuinely scared me, the ones that are just kind of cool looking. Yeah, And it's the moments of stillness, but it's when he's not really moving very quickly or not moving at all. And he's just there. And he just wants you to know that he's there because yeah. he can be anywhere all at once and in multiple forms. But it's also the, and I think this is why it is so difficult to describe. I think it's why the, you know, the book, the story is called It. Because yeah. it's not a he, it's not Pennywise. Pennywise is the the form that has stuck in pop culture the most. But there is an unknowability to it. Yes. Which is the scary part. And it's that moment. The films visualize it in different ways, right? He changes, I think what's one of the su- most successful things about them is that he changes form so many times. But there is this recurring thing that happens that you mentioned that he just opens up his mouth very wide, like with very many layers of teeth, just huge jaw drooling all over the place. But that's not necessarily the scary thing to me. The scary thing to me is just a split second before he does. Yes. Because I don't know what form he will take. Yeah. And I think it's this, you know, the thing about cosmic horror that I love is that the terrifying thing is that we don't we simply cannot comprehend the level of horror that we're yes. about to see. And yeah. the thing that kills people, humans in cosmic horror stories and why it's so bloody difficult to adapt is because how do you adapt a knowability into a visual form? Because you yeah. have to see it. The only way is to just do it through the fear of the person who's beholding it. Yeah. But then that's not necessarily very visually interesting, is it? So it's the split second. For me, it's always a split second with it before we see what it becomes and the form that it takes. Because that's the moment where I'm like, anything that I can imagine yeah. is it's 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 too much to handle. Yeah, it's that fear of like your the the kind of fear that will make your brain unhinge yes like something that is also in stephen king so much um the mm-hmm. mist yes for instance. like the whole you know there is entire passages in the novella of the mist where stephen king basically explains cosmic horror by mm-hmm. saying the, sh- the creatures that scuttle there the things that take you to the edge of complete madness mm-hmm. because of the sheer scale that your brain literally can't handle mm-hmm. all of the potential possibilities that can exist in a world where every horror exists <laughs> you know it's that that like um that almost sort of paradox of those things existing simultaneously in your brain and being too scary to exist simultaneously in your brain with you mm-hmm. exactly exactly that and you know there's it's why the thing john carpenter's the thing is so yeah. affecting it's because it you know that that's an attempt to capture something unknowable but effectively that film the horror of that film is unknowable and unseeable and shifts um shifts shapes constantly so you yeah. can never quite grasp it. Yeah. Physically and literally. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> Figuratively. And, ex- extensionally. 
You know, that's a kind of a, almost a very broad academic approach to the horror of it, but kind of talking specifically about Bill Skarsgård and his performance, what do you make of his... Um, I, I want to kind of really center it on the physicality of his Pennywise. He does spend most of the time as Pennywise the clown in the film. Yeah. I oh, I love him. I think he's I think he's tremendously terrifying. I think <laughs> from the get-go, I think he's horrific. I think his drooling, which apparently was caused by the teeth, but he kept they kept it in because they were like, yeah, that's weird and scary and it is weird and scary. Like the fact that he's just constantly like there's almost a it's not like a sort of Rick and Morty style drooling. It, it's mm. uh, it's an uncontrolled, almost kind of... It's almost lustful. Of, yeah, and lustful, but also the internal animalistic, mm-hmm. sort of the fact that something unnatural is happening. Like, he'll try and look like a nice clown, but that's wrong. <laughs> you know, it's, I think the, a... it's the betrayal of, you know, you mentioned before, he's trying to appear human, like he's wearing a person mask. Yes. But the drooling betrays him. Yeah, it's it's that sneaks out. But yeah, mm. I um I love the I also I love his performance. I love his physical performance. Yes, I also love the comedy of his performance. Like I love the fact that at one point he waves with a disembodied with a dismembered arm. Yeah, right? and yes. <laughs> I think the use of humor in these movies and there is a lot of humor, there especially is, yeah. in the darkness. Mm-hmm. And I think we need it because again, along with that you know, cosmic horror, you need to laugh or you'll probably cry. And there's mm-hmm. some really overt things that most people wouldn't laugh at a dismembered arm, but there's a specific tone for good horror mm-hmm. that almost kind of airs into Evil Dead territory, Evil Dead 2 territory, and the fact that it's absurd. There's an absurdity to it, yet it is still scary. And I think it actually walks that line very well. And he is a he's a key part of that because he's a clown. He's a comedic figure, mm-hmm. you know, and he manages to entertain and scare on every level. He's a he's a, also a ridiculous figure. Like clowns are are meant to, you know, their work is f- to get people to laugh at them. Yep. Um, and so he does these little little performances, little jittery performances of a clown, but everything is just slightly off. And I think it's that offness that he actually does very much with his physicality. Even the eyes, like Bill Skarsgård. If anybody's not seen what Bill Skarsgård looks like, he is if. You know, if the name does not betray him, part of the Skarsgård clan, which are probably the best looking Swedish men he is in existence. Bones. He is cheekbones. He is cheekbones. He is blue eyes, gray hair, like the teen star lips, like all the package. And then he does this. But he has this amazing, very bulbous eyes. And he can mm-hmm. do this thing where he can he can sort of shift one of his eyes so it looks, they, oh, they look in different directions. Yeah, he really does that, which is mad. <laughs> And it's if you if you Google he does he did this a lot on talk shows when the film was coming out and he was doing the press rounds and it's really uncanny because this very very like traditionally good looking young Swedish man suddenly will do this weird creepy shit with his face just with his mouth and his eyes like literally his eyeballs and it's uncanny it's re- oh. the domain that Matt has over his face and this role combined with the design the design of Pennywise is kind of the scene in chapter two I think where he appears as himself as what he looks like supposedly as Bill Gray yes and kind of rips rips the makeup of Pennywise into his face with his nails is oh. truly great it's he is amazing and also I think the makeup is particularly clever as well because it's wrong as well. He's got this giant domed mm-hmm. head, which is very cracked. Mm. Um, and it, it's just like everything is 
peeling like some kind of strange mask that is really too old and shouldn't be there you know it's been it's been around too long it's like he's put makeup on top of last night's makeup which has already been on top of the previous night's makeup yeah and no one has ever moisturized (laughs) not a moisturizer in sight in dairy no primer no primer (laughs) no serums no they have never been to glossier Um, (laughs) but the the true form of it which is probably the most difficult thing to adapt about the book right the Mm -hmm. the whole cosmic element of it of the of it the the turtle the deadlights deadlights yeah how do you think as a constant reader and rereader how do you think it manages to adapt that in the in the last part of the of the film to be honest, I almost the 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 turtle. They literally, it, it's almost like a tacked on thing when they're swimming. They're like, oh, there's mm-hmm. a turtle, and it cuts. Yeah, yeah. Which is clearly just a nod to mm-hmm. you know people who have read the book because I think they realise that that's a step too far. Almost, I think they understand that to adapt this, they need to they need to lose some stuff basically. But I do think that I think the deadlights, the idea of the deadlights, I think they actually go quite bold with. Um, mm-hmm. Because they could easily have just not had them, the, the, and I love the depiction of these swirling lights at the end of that long, elongated mm. tunnel of teeth. Like I love that idea, and then yeah. the, the you know the the repeat of it in mm-hmm. in the in the second one as it all descends into that little cup thing. Um, I actually think they did the best with what they had, really, for what the story that they were telling. I think. Um, they could obviously go deeper and I bet I bet Andy Machetti probably wanted to I bet there was a whole other version sitting there but at the same time I do feel like they managed to sort of vanquish that evil without having to explain too much really other than that I did love the the memory sequence for Bill as he was seeing like literally it arrive on earth which mm. I think you only realize that's what you're watching have having if you've read the book because otherwise that will probably make zero sense or even less sense <laughs> Yeah, I think so too. I think, you know, I agree. They, I think they've quite smartly um, taken out some of the over-explaining of its arrival on Earth, the whole turtle business. Um, and even, they don't necessarily explain the deadlights. In dialogue, they sort of just show it, show yeah. the effect. You know, the way that people snap into this um, paralyzed, hypnotized state where they're floating, um, I thought was very effective because it's very simple. You know, don't, look into the deadlights otherwise this is what happens that's all we need to know as viewers especially viewers who aren't necessarily seeped seeped in the book mythology or the stephen king world um but what do you think and this is kind of you know going back to what we're talking about teens and stuff when they're adults they're kind of reconnecting with their younger selves and considering when this film when these films came out 2017 and 2019 the fact that the 2017 film basically resurrected horror as a successful box office genre mm-hmm. uh, something that is not you know just for festivals that is making money that is critically well received there was this is already the point where you know elevated horror quote-unquote is is doing the round so people are already taking horror seriously so to speak but now it's also making bank again yeah how do you think this takes from the not just Stephen King, but the horror that had come before it? So I'm thinking very specifically about the tropes of teen horror films, 
um, and also of newer stuff that was coming around this time, 2007, between 2014 and 2016, when the first film was made. I think, if I think about it, like I obviously had recently watched Insidious, and mm-hmm. I feel like what um, Wan was doing, and Wanell, obviously, in the early 2010s, mm-hmm. kind of defined uh, an idea that we would have of horror monsters. Okay. Um, I feel like it, they, it didn't define it. They redefined a sort of idea of what we would expect. So there was the strange demons in Insidious, that strange sort of Darth Maul lipstick demon yeah. type thing. And it was made it okay that that was scary because, mm-hmm. you know, some people would look at it and it just looks silly. And I think that kind of paved the way for his Andy Machete's brand of horror mm-hmm. in the sense that people were quite ready for that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do, in terms of in terms of tropes, people had just seen Stranger Things yep. and they had just seen Finn Wolfhard in a very, very, very similar role. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I almost think to to a detraction, almost, because Stephen King did it first. You know, he, he did do it first before Stranger Things was a thing. That's that's where it's from, all that sort of um, Stand By Me stuff. So actually, I think some people watched it and went, oh, it's just like Stranger Things, when actually it's like, well, no, that's where that's where it came from. And actually the Duffer brothers, I think, wanted to make it mm-hmm. um i'd read and and i think it was it came it came at the right time where people could appreciate the the, the mental idea of the nostalgia of pennywise as we've discussed mm-hmm. they'd already seen that you know it was okay to go and enjoy a horror film on a friday night in the cinema that's acceptable for everybody and they already have an understanding of a of as you say a teen movie structure you know we'd had now i'm thinking about it Anna, we'd had Scream 4 in 2011, you know, so people were still watching these things. But I do mm-hmm. think, uh, I I wanted to say it would give something, and I actually think Chapter 2 gives something far more unique uh, than Chapter 1, because mm-hmm. Chapter 1 actually f- flows quite like, oh, children hunted by a thing, got to beat the thing, beats the thing, you know, mm-hmm. when actually the, the Chapter 2 does something more interesting. It's like, well, you didn't beat the thing, and now you need to tackle your adult demons or your child demons as an adult, which I actually think is a far more interesting structure, even if it's a theme, even if it's wrapped around the MacGuffin-y structure of get the things, go and get your things so we can put them in a pot, <laughs> you know? So actually, trope-wise and inspiration-wise, Chapter 2 kind of broke the mold a little bit. Mm. That's a long way of... It's probably not even answered your question, Anna. No, 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 thoughts. it kind of does, because um, I've, I've started thinking about Scream because you've brought it up um, a few times, but Scream and, and arguably some teen slashers as well that we've discussed here like the nightmare on elm street um occasionally um way down the line will send their or halloween will send their characters to rebattle the demon that they thought they had defeated yes sequels yes Yes. but we never spend as much time in these films with the characters we mostly spend them already kind of essentially repeating the thing but also trying to run away from the same thing in the same way they're never actually trying to understand themselves and combat, you know, combat the, the demons within before they can kill the demon that's external. Um, not to get to hoity, but, you know, that's pretty much it. And I think it chapter two kind of spends so much time with it. It does. It, it feels a little bit. It feels a little bit long, but because it needs to really allow every character to dive into their own psychology before they're actually equipped to deal with Pennywise again. 
and it almost by calling it chapter two, it makes it sound like a sequel when actually it's the whole book, mm-hmm. you know, and I do think chapter two is trying to say, well, this is the rest of it, but we live in a world of horror sequels. So had people not read the book and they would have just thought that the first one was the entire book and then they're just trying to yeah. cash in with a sequel when actually, as you say, emotionally, this was actually a book that was effectively ripped in two and not ripped in two in a nice way. Like literally pages ripped out everywhere and then put in a stack and then pages elsewhere put in another stack. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to, they, they separated what was a cohesive narrative of, 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 of an exploration of memory, which is what the tome is, into something that effectively looks like a, a, a first film and a second film, you know, externally. Mm-hmm. When actually that's that's not what it's meant to be, and I think because of that, they they can get away with that power. But I do also think it almost feels like a shame that you know it's not in the case of these characters. Oh, we didn't kill the thing because it's back again for you know IP reasons. We don't kill the thing because the thing comes back every twenty seven years, and we mm-hmm. have to kill it as adults. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's that it's that difference. Yeah, but I think that's also quite a smart. Um quite a smart marketing choice yes. because I think with, with, you know, it is, and I think we're living in this world now because of the dominance of the MCU, right? That yeah. as much as I, I'm a big defender of the MCU, but I'm starting to think that the, the demands on the audiences of pre-knowledge and homework yeah. to be done before watching a story has kind of reached uh, a moment of, of too muchness. Yeah. It is, it is simply, impossible for people to dive into a single story anymore they need to they need to have pre-built knowledge which is not just movies but also tv series and potentially comics yeah so and you know and i've I've always say this because the whether it's an adaptation comic book movies or the mcu or whatever i think the most successful ones are the ones that can function on you know for the hardcore fans for the readers of king for the readers and re-readers of it um it can needs to function for a general but niche audience, so a big niche. Yes. So like horror fans, they need to be able to enjoy each movie individually and as a at both as a whole. Yes. And see, they needs to function for someone who will casually go into this. Yep. It needs to be a cohesive story. So then I completely get it that yes, yeah, so no, if you're getting nitpicky, it might seem like a kind of a, a, a misdirect or or a disservice to the story because it is one story but you can't sell that to a of course to different audi- to the b and c audience because if someone just wants to see a scary movie they need to feel like it's finished and chapter one totally. finishes it and so does chapter two and they both kind of function individually even though they're two split parts of the same story and you know you mentioned you know we men- mentioned before they didn't know whether they're going to make a part two when they started making the first one. So it wasn't a given. So it kind of needed to function, totally. even if it's half of the story, it still needed to be a whole story. That was a whole big mess of explanation, but I think it kind of makes sense. Oh no, it totally does. And I feel, I, honestly, I fully, I absolutely feel, and I think the way that they did it was the best way that they could have. Mm. I mean, they made, I mean, they made two cohesive arcing narratives. <laughs> like they that, made them. That are actually that also just one story. That standalone. Yeah, they, yeah. They made two. It is, I mean, when they were planning it, obviously that was the plan that they had. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of a missing summer, it's ingenious. <laughs> like, what did we do when we were all apart? Oh, I don't know. Let's find out. And you mm-hmm. and you don't need to have known that there was a missing summer for that second one. But yeah, no, I feel like they, they did it in the best possible way that they could have. Mm-hmm. 
So what I love, and I mentioned it kind of before, um, that the film was released 27 years after the other screen adaptation of of it it's just cute it's really it's cute um and we mentioned also became the highest grossing horror film of all time i believe it still is but to start wrapping up our conversation about it what do you think about it chapter one in particular landed so much with everyone that it became very critically acclaimed and immensely financially successful I was thinking about this last night when I was watching it going, mm. I'm actually quite surprised it did. Oh. <laughs> I'm not surprised that it did because of what I was watching, but I was mm -hmm. surprised when I realized how successful and critically acclaimed it was as almost like a lovely surprise that mm -hmm. everybody mm -hmm. accepted it. Um, and I think it's everything we've spoken about. I think it is that focus on characters. It's that idea of, you know, that power of the power of the imagery of Pennywise um, which hopefully then people realised could be many more scary shapes, uh, complete with completely over the top, gruey comedy. Um, I think there, I think it's it's scary. It's funny. It's smart. It feels smart. It never mm -hmm. um, it never makes you feel like an idiot as a viewer. It does smart things. It has smart talking characters, and it genuinely, as we've kind of rounded up, there is something scary for everyone. It is like an all-you-can-eat buffet of scares. You can just leave some bits. Maybe you just want the coleslaw. Maybe you just want the bacon bits. Maybe mm. you just want the dismembered hands. Great. Here's that's for you. Um, it's all there. It's a full package. And it has the heart of Stephen King, mm -hmm. which everybody, you know, more people and everybody now absolutely adores. We're in another year of endless King adaptations. We won't talk about Firestarter. Uh, no, that's not. It's not, no. but mm. yes, you are correct. We're living through. I want to say now the what the third big peak of Stephen King adaptations. Another was, Renaissance, honestly. Another one. I mean, he's never stopped, but they they do seem to coalesce sometimes in mm. kind of spit one or two year periods, bursts yep. almost. Yeah. Um, and you know, we didn't even mention Stephen King's own cameo in It Chapter <laughs> Two, and a little a little poking fun of himself as well, where he's like, mm, "Your endings always suck." It's like, okay. Okay, King. Literally. Yep. Mm -hmm. Especially Literally. this one. I, I know. <laughs> I mean, yes. I can't believe we've spoken for over an hour and not mentioned the weird of, uh, orgy, yeah. orgy of the book. But you know, we don't have to because the no. films chose Fixed not it. to do it. <laughs> Good for them. Good for Machete. Yeah. He fixed something that ever is the one thing that everybody talks about who loves it. It's like, yeah, it yeah, is great. It. Weird child orgy scene, but you know, okay, let's forget about it. Yep. The eighties yep. were a hell of a decade. Strange times. And I think yeah. King was on a lot of drugs at one point. Yes. And I think he has he has spoken about it. He's like, I'm not yeah. sure what I was going for there, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. he does have a very, his moral compass, you know, if you can't feel it in his books, which you obviously can, mm -hmm. his action, I mean, he, when he released, obviously, um, the collection of Bachman books and mm -hmm. one of the, one of the Bachman books, The Long Walk, is one of my is my second favourite over uh, mm -hmm. under it. Um, but he also had uh, a book called, a novella called Rage, which had mm -hmm. a school shooter in it, which once, when Columbine happened, he retracted. You know, he is very active over his, you know, his work. And he is very, very keen that his work is never real. You know, mm -hmm. I think he's, you know, really passionate about that, which I always find really reassuring. Like mm -hmm. he's very, for, for creating such nightmares, he's very, very, um, he, he cares and you know wants things to stay 
fictional and Mm -hmm. you know is and i think that actually comes through his tone and and pure of heart comes through in a lot of a lot of his fiction and i think it really comes through through the characters as well i think the Mm -hmm. his ability to capture a certain kind of childhood not tenderness but what's the word that i'm looking for the way he captures the the losers club the losers in this book and in these films uh particularly the first one they are so vulnerable but they're so desperate not to show that vulnerability but Mm -hmm. we get to see it we get to see it when they're together and we get to see it when they're apart and we get to see them allow themselves to be vulnerable when they find each other again not to go back to the scene of the the bloody bathroom but the, one of the sweetest moments in the film is when all the losers help Bev clean up the bathroom because yes. only they can see it mm-hmm. and they and they don't want her to have to carry that by herself. Yep. And at the same time, you know, it's interspersed with beautiful scenes of humor, like the new kids on the block joke. It's fantastic. Yep, love it. Especially love the it. moment when they go into Ben's room and she sees the <laughs> so poster the the door. <laughs> and it's a, it's a little in joke just chef's kiss or you know the desperate the desperate richie and and to a degree eddie's as well just desperate attempt to be more in control of themselves and more independent Mm -hmm. and more fearless all their constant swearing and like making sex jokes it's like sweetie sweetie please and there's also some real the real sweetness of when they're when they've all got their shower caps on because they don't want to get spiders in their hair like and they genuinely have some really sweet chat Mm -hmm. with these silly hats on and it's genuinely like it's so pure and so lovely actually those bits and it does feel i think at the end of the first film there's hints right you know so i mentioned this kind of like teenness of it all that the cusp of teenness and it's very noticeable as well in the scene when they're all at the creek and they're kind of jumping into the water and stuff the way that the boys are just freaked out by the fact that bev is there and doing the things that they're doing i find delightful uh like they're just staring at her like she's some sort of alien because she's a girl and she's also so effortlessly cool too she's it's so like cool. come on jesus christ bev in this film at age 12 is like cooler than i am or it yep. will ever be my entire life but then it's also when everything is done for a bit it does have that and king is so good at this that final summer feeling yes the moment where everything has changed yep. and you know it's changed but you don't know exactly how and it's either the monster is dead, it's either they have their first kiss, it's either they realize something or they stand up to someone who's been bullying them or, or, or you know, in the case of Bev assaulting them for ages. There's a finality to it. It feels like such a, the beginning of a new point in their lives and in like an entry point, not into adulthood, but into something else, like the death of their childhood. And I think the monsters that they fight through any king is actually a lot of them are human and a lot of them are very very specific king type characters Mm -hmm. um the the bully belch is is just pure king Mm -hmm. the father is as well you know and if you think about um mrs carmody in the mess like these are very he has very um he has very specific types of evil characters that mm-hmm. you overcome as well mm-hmm. as the horror, mm-hmm. which I always really like. It's almost like, oh, that's a king character. And sometimes in both chapter one and chapter two, those characters can be very um 
again, the sort of broad brush strokes of evil character. Bully mm-hmm. is nasty, but yeah. also they 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 don't they they aren't just cookie cutter because they have an unpredictable edge to them, like the carving into the stomach of Ben. Mm-hmm. Because the other even the other characters are like, "What are you doing? Like, no, this is too far even for us. We know we're bullies, <laughs> but mm-hmm. we don't go that far." And it's those characters that aren't afraid, that are completely immoral, that don't that don't exist in the rules of society that he is so good at pitting his good characters against beautifully put and louise before we before we wrap up is there any last thoughts you wanted to share about the it movies i think chapter two is far more of a fun emotional haunted house than i previously gave it credit for and i would like to renounce my previous negativity and i think it's excellent it has its weak points Certainly, more weak points than the first one, obviously, but it is far stronger than you think it is mm-hmm. if you watch it in conjunction with the first. That's Amazing. my official it statement. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're setting the it record straight. Yes, setting it straight. Yes. Amazing. Louise, a joy as always. So but, lovely. And also now I know that you reread it every year or every few years, which is very weird and intense but it makes me appreciate you even more oh thanks anna and thank you for having me again it's i've been i have missed you always a pleasure we should talk about it the book we should do a we should do a stephen king book club oh my gosh like i've literally now want to reread it i haven't read it for about a year and a half so it might be time to reread it i want to reread it too i don't think i've reread it since the movies came out and i sort of dipped into it again yeah now is the time now especially after that rewatch Oh dear. But Louise, where if people aren't following you already, which they should, where can they find more of your work online? You can find me mostly on Twitter. I am at shiny underscore demon and you'll find all my thoughts on horror movies and games and tech and also gaming soundtracks. I have a Radio 3 show about gaming soundtracks, so you should listen to that. Sound of Gaming, first Saturday of every month, uh, also available on BBC Sounds. Thanks for the plug. Lovely. Thanks so much.